Well, you had to want to be here today, right? So I'm going to make some assumptions. Uh, I'm going to assume that you love Jesus Christ or want to love Jesus Christ, and that's why you made the effort to be here today. And I've just got some encouragements for you today from the Word of God to uh, just uplift your spirit. Because it is coming into the Christmas season, the most wonderful time of the year. And do you have your chestnuts roasting on an open fire yet? It's coming. Hope so. But you know what? There's a version of the Christmas story that I would imagine none of you on Christmas morning will gather your family around the Christmas tree, pull out your Bible, and read this story. One commentator called it the Christmas from hell. Whoa, that sounds encouraging, huh? I call it the behind-the-scenes Christmas, and it's found in Revelation chapter 12. And I want to read it to you. Listen to the Christmas story behind the scenes. It says this, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Merry Christmas. Yuletide blessings. Not quite the warm, fuzzy glow that we're usually after during the Christmas holidays. Here's this vision given to the Apostle John. It's of a woman who is very pregnant, on the verge of giving birth, crying out as she experiences sharp labor pains. How many of you ladies have experienced that? I hear it's quite something. And then, this, in the vision, this great and terrifying dragon appears, blood-red, in color, having many heads and a tail, and he's seen standing right in front of the woman, waiting for the baby to emerge from the birth canal so that he can devour it. So a grotesque, gruesome scene. Then it says, in verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was thankfully caught up to God and to his throne. And so the dragon's plan is, is foiled, and the little boy child, who is destined to be a king, arrives safely, and it says he is snatched away and protected by God. The dragon, we're told a little bit later, is the devil himself. And as far as the woman goes, many scholars believe that the woman represents both Mary, who gave birth to the Christ child, and Mary's people, the messianic community of which she was a part, the people of God. So apparently that very first Christmas was met with great cosmic opposition. This attempt to snuff out the life of the Messiah almost certainly is a reference to Herod, King Herod's jealous rage overhearing that there was a rival king on the scene in Israel. And you might recall his order that went out that all the little male Jewish boys, were to be killed. What this story tells us is that behind his murderous rage was a more sinister, dark force, a dragon, the devil. When his plan failed, when the dragon's plan failed, it tells us that the dragon became furious in verse 17. 
he became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, who we see in the story are the followers of Jesus. Now, all of this begs the question, why? Why? Why did the devil go to all that effort to try and snuff out that little baby's life? And when he was unable to do so, why did he then go off on us, the people of God, in anger and fury? And those are good questions, and here's the answer. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Would you say that with me? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, our Christmas series this year, as Pastor Brian mentioned, is entitled, Why? Why? Why did Jesus come? Jesus, as a grown man, said many times, I came down from heaven. The Father has sent me here. But the question again is, why? Why? What was the purpose of his entrance into our world? Now, if you read through the New Testament, you'll find several specific statements that tell us the purpose of his coming, and this is one of them. The reason the Son of God appeared, it says, was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came, and that's why the devil did everything in his power to destroy him, to devour that little life before he got the chance to carry out his devastating mission of destroying the works of the devil. Thankfully, the devil failed. He failed miserably. We can rejoice and be glad this Christmas because the devil failed and Herod's scheme did not work and the baby Jesus was not devoured. Indeed, he was born. He was whisked away to Egypt to avoid the slaughter of Herod. He grew up and he fulfilled his his mission. But I got to thinking about this as I read that as I read the story and as I read this verse. He came to destroy the works of the devil. I I got curious. What are the works of the devil that Jesus came to destroy? And I did a little Bible study. And uh, the the fruit of that is found on your study guide this morning. So if you haven't yet pulled that out of your worship folder, I want us all to be aware this morning and to expose, I guess I would say, the works of the devil. And if you don't believe in the devil, just draw the assignment of speaking on destroying the works of the devil and you will believe in the devil because he does not take kindly to that. First thing I discovered is that it is the work of the devil to instigate sin and rebellion. Makes sense, right? <laughs> First John 3, 8a, the beginning of the verse we quoted earlier, says this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The devil was the original sinner. He was the original rebel against God. He led a revolt in heaven against the Almighty, Isaiah tells us, a rebellion that was joined by a third of the other angels. Jesus said that the devil was a sinner since the beginning, and you know what? The devil can only do what he knows to do, and that's to sin. And so the devil has been sinning, and he's been inciting others to sin for centuries, and he will continue to do so until he is once and for all, finally and forever, decommissioned later on, and we'll talk about that. So one of the works of the devil is to instigate sin and rebellion. Anywhere you find sin and rebellion in the world, behind that you will find the dark forces of the evil one. Second, Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief, talking about the devil, comes only to what? 
steal and kill and destroy. So there's three more works of the devil, stealing, killing, and destroying. Not the kind of a person you want to hang out with or consort with. Not a good guy. You know, sometimes people dabble around in the occult with Ouija boards and seances and tarot cards and things like that, and they think it's just harmless. But you know what? It's not just harmless. It's really foolish to dabble around in the demonic, in the occultic. You need to understand there is evil intent behind all of the devil's interactions with human beings. There is not one shred of goodwill towards you and towards me in the heart of the devil. It's all meant to harm, to steal, to kill, to destroy. The devil is a thief, Jesus said. Speaking of stealing things, here's another work of the devil. Jesus alluded to it in Luke 8, 12. This is from the parable of the sower. Remember that story? The sower sowing the seed of the word of God. And in some cases, Jesus said the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So it's the work of the devil to snatch away, to snatch away the word of God. And you know what? He's still doing that today. In fact, he's probably involved in doing that right now as I am sowing the seed of the word of God in this room. The devil is no doubt trying to distract you and snatch away the word of God from our hearts so that it will not take root and bear fruit unto eternal life and unto salvation. You see, when souls are saved, they start giving glory to Jesus Christ and the devil hates that. It's unbearable to him. And so he works to steal away, to snatch away the word of God that is read or listened to or taught or preached. Here's some more works of the devil. Number four, deceiving and murdering. Jesus looked at a group of people one day. It's recorded in John 8, 44. And he said, you are of your father, the devil. Your daddy's the devil, is what he said. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. You might want to underline the word murderer. And he's nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Or one version says he speaks his native language. For he is a liar. You can underline that word. And the father of lies. Jesus is very clear. The devil is a murderer. He's a liar. In Revelation 12, which contains that Christmas story we read earlier, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's a murderer. You want to know what's behind all the deception in our world and all the murder in our world? It's the devil. He hates truth and he hates life. He is an expert liar and everyone who believes his lies is doomed to die. Not only a first death, but the Bible talks about a second death. This is not a good guy. This is not someone you want to hang around with, spend time with, consort with, either he or his minions. It's also the work of the devil, number five, to blind and to bind people. Not only to deceive and murder and lie and steal and kill and destroy and incite sin, but to blind and, and bind people. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this world, who's that? Notice lowercase g, not talking about the almighty God, it's talking about the present ruler of this 
world, that's Satan, he has blinded, there's the work, blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so there's people walking around in your life and mine, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, maybe even in your own family, who are walking around and they're absolutely blind to the truth. They don't know they're blind, perhaps, but they're blind to it. They can't see it, and it's because they've been blinded by the one who blinds, the God of this world. He blinds people so they can't see the truth. He also binds them. He ensnares. He captures them. Paul was writing about certain unbelievers, and he hoped in 2 Timothy 2 that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. The word snare means a trap, like an animal trap, where he catches people, he ensnares them, after being captured by him to do his will. So this is a work of Satan as well, to blind people and to ensnare and bind and hold them captive. You know, sometimes people talk as if unbelievers have a totally free will and can do whatever they want and believe whatever they want. And certainly unbelievers do have a sense of free will in the sense that they can make the choice of whether to buy a Blackberry or an iPhone or things like that. But when it comes to pleasing God, the Bible paints a totally different picture. And it basically says, until someone is granted repentance, like it says in that verse, they are blind, they cannot see, and they are captive to Satan. If you're in the room today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not born again, you're not one of his, you have literally no defense against the evil one. None. It's one reason why the gospel of God's grace is such good news. Because he opens the eyes of the blind. He sets the prisoner free, it says, through his gospel. Well, some more works of the devil. Number six, he oppresses people. He oppresses people. He loves to do this. Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, with Jesus. And so the devil seeks to oppress people, particularly the people of God, to discourage them to take them down. He can't change their eternal destiny, but he wants to take them down as much as possible in this life. He oppresses them. If you've ever had an hour or a day or a week or a month where you were walking around, you just felt this heaviness over you, this dark cloud over your head that was out of proportion to your circumstances, it's very likely the oppression of the evil one in your life. You have a target on your back because you name the name of Christ. He oppresses. Number seven, he opposes and devours. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful for your adversary. What does that mean? Your, Your enemy, your opponent. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. There's a picture for you. Seeking someone to devour. These are works of Satan to devour people, picking them off one at a time, especially those who are wandering away from the flock and are isolated. Those are the ones the roaring lion goes after because they're defenseless. Our adversary, the devil, our opponent. You see, this contest we're in, in this life, is not against flesh and blood. 
You know, the, the Republicans are not the real enemy. The Democrats are not the real enemy. The rich people are not the real enemy. The poor people are not the real enemy. Satan is the real enemy. He's the adversary, the opponent. And whether or not you are set against him, let me tell you, he is set against you. He is your adversary. What else does the devil do? He produces and appeals to pride, doesn't he? (laughs) Pride. I mean, that's what got him in trouble in the first place. Isaiah says, you know, back in eternity past, the devil felt like he should be worshipped instead of God. Pride. Every shred of pride that's ever been in my heart or in yours was incited and fanned into flames by the devil. He is full of pride. He's full of himself. And everybody who's full of themselves has been influenced by the evil one. He intimidates through the fear of death. I've been with some people at their bedside as they were dying and they didn't know Christ and saw on their faces the anguish, the fear, the uncertainty about what lay ahead. That's his work. Interesting, number 10, he sows weeds in God's field. This was a parable that Jesus told about the farmer who sowed good seed in his field. But then he said, someone came in in the night and, and sowed weeds in that same field. And when he was explaining the parable, he said, that's the devil who does that. The devil sows tares right alongside the wheat. The devil places his people right alongside God's people in the church to wreak havoc. It's a work of the evil one. He incites persecution. Revelation 2.10 says he, he got some Christians thrown into prison. The devil tempts, doesn't he? He's a tempter. And interestingly, in the story of Jesus, when Jesus faced the devil in the wilderness in that great showdown in the desert, you know what, what the essence of the temptation was? It was to take an easier path. The devil came to Jesus and said, look, I hold the title deed to the kingdoms of this world. I'll give them to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. You don't have to go to a cross. You can bypass the cross and become a king. I have the power to give these kingdoms to you. And Jesus said, no. No, I will wear a cross before I will wear a crown. The devil was tempting him to take the easier path, and he's still doing that today with God's people, tempting them to take the easier path, to have their best life now, instead of the road of suffering and tribulation that is so often the mark of New Testament Christianity. The devil casts doubt on the worthiness of God. That's one of his works. Remember the story of Job? And we get a glimpse of... of the scene going on in heaven behind the curtain. And it says in Job 1.8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Hey, Satan, have you seen my guy Job down there? He's a good guy. He loves me. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face, God. In other words, he was taunting God, wasn't he? 
saying, God, you better wake up. People like Job only love you because of your gifts to them, because you've made their life easy. Take away those gifts of provision and family and health and possessions, and you'll see they'll turn on you and drop you like a rock, God. You see, you're not worthy. You're not intrinsically worthy of worship. It's only the good things you do for them that cause them to be loyal to you and love you. And you know what? The devil is still doing that today. He's still casting doubt on the intrinsic worth of God today. I want to say something to you that sounds really weird to say in this culture. If God in his sovereignty should choose to remove from you his hand of protection, if God for some cosmic purpose should allow the devil to take away your health, your possessions, your family, everything, God is still worthy of your worship. He's still worthy of your worship. Not because of what he's done for you, but because of who he is. That's why he's worthy of your worship and mine. I don't pray that God would do that, but if he does, do what Job did when he'd been stripped of everything. And what did he say? Though you slay me, yet I will trust in you. You see, the devil tempts people to doubt that God is worthy of their worship. These are the works of the devil, and there's many, many more that we could name, accusation and intimidation and others. But listen, the Bible says that Jesus came, he appeared on this earth to destroy the devilish, diabolical works of the devil. And we should praise God for that. Jesus came to destroy all those things we just talked about. But my question was how? How did Jesus destroy the devil's works? And how will Jesus destroy the works of the devil one day? Well, I want to give you three encouragements today as men and women who love Jesus Christ, who'd come out to church on a snowy day and risk life and limb to worship with your brothers and sisters. Three things to ponder and to rejoice in. Number one, Christ destroyed the devil's works through his own death on the cross. Yeah, this is so super ironic to me that the way that Christ chose to disarm the devil was to take the devil's chief weapon and use it against him. He defeated death by dying. That's what the Bible says. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, He himself, that's Christ, likewise partook of the same things that, what are the next two words? Through death. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus used death to defeat death. Yeah, amen. I love the way Colossians 2.15 says it. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, talking about demonic spirits and Satan, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by what? By the cross. He defanged Satan by dying. He took his chief weapon and used it against him. He destroyed death and all that leads to death by dying. 
You see, it's kind of unsettling to think about, but that little baby born in that Bethlehem manger that first Christmas was born to die. The shadow of a cross lay over that manger. That's why it says they wrapped him in swaddling clothes. You know what swaddling clothes are? That's not like a nice, soft, terry cloth blanket that you'd wrap a baby in. Those were grave cloths. Strips of linen that were used to wrap dead bodies. That's what the baby Jesus was wrapped in because he was born to die. That's why the wise men from the east brought gold and frankincense and myrrh, which was a burial spice. It's what they packed in those strips of linen when they packed dead bodies, carcasses. The baby was born to die. Why? To destroy the works of the devil through his death. It's amazing. You say, how does that work? Well, because of Jesus' death, our many sins have been taken away. Our sin debt has been canceled. His righteousness has been credited to our account. And for us, death no longer means being ushered into a divine courtroom to face the wrath, the just wrath of a holy creator against our sins, For us, death means running into the arms of a heavenly daddy because of the cross. Running into his arms and being home with the Father forever. All purchased and achieved for us through the death of Christ. It's a glorious thing. So all of the devil's tempting, all of his accusing and lying and oppressing and stealing ultimately comes to nothing. It's just a temporal nuisance. No eternal impact on the people of God. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and he did it through his own bloody death and the empty tomb so that those who put their faith in him are ultimately delivered from all that Satan hoped to accomplish. He destroyed the devil's works through his own death on the cross. And then as I just alluded to, he destroyed the devil's works through his glorious resurrection from the grave. His resurrection from the grave. You know, in John 11, Jesus made this great statement to Martha after her brother had died, Lazarus. Remember this? Jesus waited a few days before he came, and he came to this scene of the funeral, and people were weeping and crying, and Jesus himself wept. And Martha came to Jesus and said, I know my brother's going to rise again at the resurrection. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Resurrection power. That's why 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Revelation 26, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such a one, the second death has no power. And so this triumphant cry in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Christ has overcome the curse of sin and death through his resurrection. You see, Jesus' death on the cross provided it and secured it, but his resurrection from the empty tomb assured it and sealed it. I said this a few weeks ago. I'll say it again. The worst thing, the absolute worst thing that the devil can do to you if you're a child of God is kill your body. That's the worst thing he can do is kill your body. And if that should happen, 
then your body, your physical body, the dead body, will be lying there in the morgue, but your spirit will have flown away to be with Jesus. And one day, because of the resurrection, he is going to raise your body from the grave, transform our lowly bodies so they become like his glorious body, reunite your body and spirit together so that you can live in a whole new dimension of life in the new heavens and the new earth. That's a promise that comes right out of the gospel of Christ. It's a glorious thing. What a promise. Jesus makes shambles of the devil's work. Yes, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but through the resurrection of Jesus, these are only temporary thefts and killings and destructions that will one day be reversed and totally undone for all of God's true people. You see the victory here? Do you see the promise? Do you see the power? Do you see how Jesus Christ, through his cross and through his resurrection, destroyed the works of the devil? Now, someone may ask, as a middle school kid asked me a couple weeks ago in my little middle school small group I lead. So, Pastor Steve, God is greater than the devil, right? Right. So why doesn't God just snuff out the devil? You ever had that question? It's a good question, isn't it? Why doesn't God just take him out here and now, be done with him? It it seems like he defanged him and declawed him and then let him off the hook by letting him live. Why does God do that? And I looked at the young man and said, that is a very perceptive question, young man. That's like an 800-level class question, and you're in seventh grade. But I'll give it a shot. And I basically said, to understand why God lets Satan live, you have to understand the vast purpose of the whole universe and the grand story of God and the dual nature of the kingdom of God. And he said, what? (laughs) Here's a a thought to chew on this Christmas season, okay? The kingdom of God is both already and not yet. The kingdom of God is both come and still to come. The same Jesus who looked at people and said, the kingdom of God is here among you, later said, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come. The kingdom of God is both already and not yet, and we live in this in-between time, in this season, where God is working out his grand purposes for all of humanity in this already but not yet season of his kingdom. And so he lets Satan live a while longer to fulfill his grand purposes in this era, which have more to do with revealing his attributes than it does with our comfort and ease and having a nice time all the time. The grand purposes of God. His attributes are on display in this era, and they're more observable when they're set in contrast with sin and evil. And so sin and evil is allowed to continue for a while and that way grace becomes amazing. Do you understand that? I'm not sure I do. I can tell you that seventh grade kid didn't. These are big thoughts. The devil is allowed to exist for a season, for a reason. And so when the Bible speaks of our lives as New Testament Christians, it speaks of our lives as a difficult race that we must run with endurance, 
Hebrews 12. It speaks of our life as a fight that we need to armor up for and stand strong in. Ephesians 6. We're told that in this world we will have tribulation and that we are to endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. But then it also says the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And that day's coming. And we hope and long for that day. So we live in the meantime, in the in-between time, in the already-but-not-yet era where Satan is allowed to exist to fulfill the grand purposes of God to make his glory look glorious. But there's that promise we cling to. We can summarize it like this. Jesus' victory over Satan and the powers of darkness was purchased and provided by his work on the cross and the empty tomb. Today it's progressively being realized in the lives of his people during this age as we make his victory our victory. One day, his victory over the devil will be permanent and perfect and complete, accomplished at a final judgment. And that's my third and last point. Christ will ultimately destroy the works of the devil completely and permanently at the final judgment. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20. It says, when the thousand years are ended, that's the millennial reign of King Jesus on the earth, when that season is over, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, good names for your children, to gather them for the battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So Satan is going to be released and permitted to lead one final rebellion. Amazing. People are still going to follow Satan when King Jesus is sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. He's here. And people are still going to be deceived and follow Satan. One last revolt, one last rebellion. Verse 9, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. (coughs) Excuse me. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet already were. So you have the devil and the beast and the false prophet, the unholy trinity, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Game over for them. This is the promise of the final decommissioning of the evil one when his purposes, God's purposes for letting him live have been served. A day is coming when the eternal Son of God the one who invaded human history, who broke into our world, who arrived not as a glorious monarch, but as a helpless baby in Bethlehem's manger, the one who grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men, the one who was baptized by John in the Jordan River and then faced down temptation in the great showdown in the desert with the devil himself, the one who lived the life we could never live and died the death we deserved to die. The one who who then snapped the shackles of death in that tomb, a rich man's tomb, and burst out of the grave with power, leaving his face cloth folded there neatly on the stone slab. That Jesus, the one who appeared to over 500 witnesses and then was taken up into heaven, the one who sat down at the right hand of God after having made purification for sins once, The Son of God who ever lives, it says, to make intercession for the saints 
who's coming again in power on a white horse with power and great glory, who will speak a word out of his mouth and totally obliterate the armies of humanity that are arrayed against him, who after his thousand-year earthly reign will quell that final rebellion on the earth with a fiery blast, and then he will take that old dragon by the tail. After first hearing his confession, Jesus, you are Lord. That's going to happen first. Every tongue will confess things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Let me hear it, Satan, your Lord. Wham! Throw him into the burning sulfurous lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. And all sin and oppression and killing and destruction and temptation and intimidation and accusation will be over forever. And Satan will receive the just punishment due for his capital crimes against the almighty creator and his people. And I'm telling you, there's going to be no redemption for Satan, no grace, no gospel, no good news, no atonement for his sins, no being born again, no being saved. He will burn in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. And I, for one, am glad of that. And he will deceive the nations no more. He will wreak no more havoc in the people of God. He will cast no more dispersion on the beautiful, glorious name of Jesus Christ. I love what Carmen used to say in his music videos. He said, you know what? When Satan comes to you and he reminds you of your past, just remind him of his future. See how long he hangs around when you remind him where he's headed. Listen. One of the reasons that Jesus came that first Christmas was to destroy the works of the devil. We as his redeemed people can experience a measure of that victory now, but the full measure of Jesus' victory over Satan awaits us. It's yet to come, isn't it? And we look forward to that day. It's as certain to happen one day as the certainty of his death and resurrection already happened in history, in time. It's coming. For all whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, we will be jumping up and down together in great joy as the evil one is finally disposed of and Christ reigns over his people without rival. And we begin our grand and glorious journey of enjoying our Savior in heaven forever and ever and ever. That's our great hope. Jesus will one day ultimately and finally destroy the works of the devil. And for the first time in history, we will enjoy God unhindered and unshackled by sin and Satan. That's a glorious promise. Amen. That's a glorious promise. Lord Jesus, thank you for the encouragement of being, it being revealed to us that your enemy is a defeated foe. And even as we your people struggle to fight him and to fight sin in this day and age. We take great hope that one day you're going to dispose of him by your power and your great glory. And he will afflict us no more. And we long for that day. And we say thank you. 
And Lord, as we enter into a time now of communion, where we celebrate your atonement for us, your payment for our sins, our redemption through the cross and the empty tomb, we also ask that you would open our eyes today to see this as a victory celebration of your triumph over the works of the evil one who wanted to take us to hell but can't because we've been sealed and secured by your grace. Remind us of that today. We pray in your precious name. Amen.